podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. It's got to 2-2 two, two, and we've still got more than half an hour to go. And here's Ozil. Lacazette. Ozil! Baby, welcome to the party. Huh? I hit the boy up and then I go skating around it. Baby, welcome to the party. Pick some of that. Give me lit. Gun on my One in the head. Send in the clip. Baby. Baby, Baby, don't trip. Just lower your tone. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Touchy Gunas podcast. Um, thank you all for tuning in, uh, wherever you're listening. Uh, we're glad that you are. Um, this week, uh, we've got uh, myself, Nigerian Dan, uh, no German Dan this week. Um, and we have uh, Sean and Leroy. How are you guys doing? Good evening, good evening. All good, all good. Uh, we are joined by a very special guest. Um, we're very happy to have you on. Um, uh, from the Arsenal Vision podcast, very popular podcast, all, all three of us uh, and most of the rest of the Touchy Gooners cast all tune in um, on a, I guess, so, somewhat religious basis, I think, to, to hear uh, what yourself, um, Tim, Clive and Paul have to say uh, on the podcast. So we're very, very glad to have you on. Um, Yankee Gunner. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I, I have to say, it, it is a shame of the four members of our podcast that somehow you wound up with me uh, responding <laughs> to your DM. And I'm sure when you sent the DM, you were like, oh, maybe it'll be Clive, maybe it'll be Tim. <laughs> oh, shit, it's Elliot. All right, well, well, we're stuck now. We asked him. So we got to have him on. So here no, I am. I, do, do you know, you know what, Elliot? It, it was specifically you. We, we've had Clive on before. So no, no, it was, it was you. Oh, oh, this time, oh so. okay. <laughs> it's all coming out now. Okay, thanks, Sean. <laughs> yeah, no, um, it's, a, it's, it's a funny one because I think your views are probably more in line with I think most of the the podcast I think we're we're seen as quite a, a highly critical um an analysis of uh of Arsenal um and Hence so the name. it's very interesting <laughs> to see yeah it's very interesting to see how um what uh how some of your views might align with with some of ours so um let's get straight into it then I guess uh one nil loss to Aston Villa um, not the best result, um, and it seemed like you know it's it's pretty much one of the the, the Arsenal of old, you know, in terms of uh, we shoot ourselves in the foot and then uh, early on and can't seem to you know muster up enough to to equalise or, or potentially uh, win the game. Um, what what I guess I guess what's your 
overall thoughts and opinions about that game as a whole. Um, we will mm. go into sort of individual uh, player performances and stuff uh, throughout the rest of the, the episode. But yeah, it'd be good to hear what your thoughts are on that game and, and what it might potentially mean for our season. Yeah, and I, I promise I'm not trying to be contrarian just for like hashtag clicks or anything, but there is an interesting phenomenon going on, guys. I think now with with Twitter and and whether it's the the you know Arsenal fan TV or some of the podcasts or whatever it is, that you can watch a game and get very caught up in what the emotion other people are feeling is, and you start to see the game through the lens of that reaction. So if I'm on Twitter when I'm watching the game and Twitter's starting to lose their mind. I kind of start to lose my mind too. And, and and that's how I see the game. So I have to admit, I sort of felt about, well, you should feel pretty bad about losing any game. Losing uh, was not fun. But then Clive and I on our Patreon, we did a, a second half rewatch where we watched the game together and we analyzed what we're seeing and we, we put that out as a video. And I can't help it. It was really good. And I put this on Twitter and people were like, oh, you've lowered your standards. What's wrong with you? I guess you like losing, you know, you know all, the, all the usual civil discourse that you get on social media. But... The reality is, maybe it's how low the bar was from November and December. Or maybe it is a genuine improvement that we are seeing. You can lose games. That can happen. It's a low-scoring sport. You can lose games. But the way we were pushing the ball up the pitch, the way Party was getting it up the pitch quickly, the way we were pushing it between the lines to Smith-Rowe flitting around, the way we were bringing Pepe into play and, and creating dangerous moves, and there were a lot of moves that broke down with the final ball. And I'm not saying that's okay. That's part of football too, getting the last ball right, getting the shot right. But watching it a second time, I couldn't help but feel if we play that way the rest of the season, more often than not, it will not just be a good performance, it will be a result. And right now things aren't going for us. They rotationally fouled a lot, they got away with that, we had a penalty that wasn't given, we had an Odegaard shot that was blasted over, we had a Pepe shot that was just wide of the post, we had a Pepe cross for an Aubameyang tap-in that hits a defender, just nicks off a defender, and just goes right into Emmy Martinez's hands instead of going into the goal or continuing on to Aubameyang. We had these moments. Um, you know, and Martinez made a world-class save from the Shaka free kick. We were chasing the game, and that was our fault. We gave away a goal early. But these last two games, we've been ruthlessly punished by the, the finest of margins. And if you came away from the first half of Wolves thinking great and we were unlucky, I beg you, Watch the second half of Villa again, and you come back here and tell me that it wasn't great. So I guess what I would say is this. I'm not a Pollyanna. I'm not going to say losing's okay. It's not. But if I remember correctly, Emery won a, was it, 26-game unbeaten run or something? And during that run, we were pretty shit. Are, am I allowed to talk like that on here? Is that okay? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were pretty shit. But, like, every, no address it because we were we weren't. And we, we, we wanted the results to be real, so we just kind of closed our eyes and said, yeah, yeah, this is fine. But it wasn't fine. And sure enough, we kept playing that way and the results caught up with us and we know what happened. I am convinced if we keep playing this way that this is good process and the outcome will come. So I am not, I know I'm not, my brand isn't positivity, but I can only analyze what I watch. I watched this game a second time and I think we played pretty well and are we still a flawed team? Of course we are. But yeah, I'm overall encouraged that we continue to be able to play in a way that I think we'll get results if we stick with it. Sorry to disappoint you guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I find that very interesting because, um, yeah, on watching the second half again as well, um, so I, I was trying to write a piece this week on um, Martin Odegaard and see, uh, and just to just sort of profile him and see where he might fit into the team. 
Um, and I'm watching the second half again. I think there are a lot of good elements as to, you know, as you mentioned, the build up. Um, and it seemed like maybe we were just lacking that bit of final third execution or, you know, that 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 uh, that final finish. And it's it's very contrasting, I think, to, you know, some of the games we were playing in October, November, December, where I think first half against Leicester is one that comes to mind where at the time, you know, people were saying, oh, yeah, that's probably one of the best halves we played all season. But, you know, if you watch that again, um, it I don't think that repeatability factor of that first half was quite there, whereas in this in this in this uh, game, I do think that repeatability factor is there. You know that the party being the option for in the first phase um, is massive here. Xhaka playing those passes uh, down the left channel to Pepe um, or uh, Saka or something like that. I think the elements of this of this performance in terms of the the styles that we were trying to trying to do are very repeatable, and I do feel like now. Uh, there's certain upgrade opportunities that we can have in the team that can really propel us to to that next level. Um, Leroy, let's get you involved in the in the conversation. Is there anything that you want to you know sort of add to that? So yeah, in a similar way, as I was saying to you guys before, my brand is a bit negativity as well, I'm known for in the touchy goodness community. But I was really enthused. I was really enthused. The reason is, you know, when just from a visceral perspective, it was fun to watch again, and we haven't had that in a long time. So remember what we were saying before in previous podcasts about how we don't take risks in the final third. I felt it was good because we were playing those balls around the corner, those balls in between two players that actually make defenders move around. Those tiny little movements that really, really start moving around the opposition. Lots of link-up play. People were linking up very well. Quick passes, one-two. There was a lot of things which I thought, this is the style of play which we used to watch. And this is what we all grew up on. So I, I was really enthused. So I thought, even though we didn't create a barrage of chances in the second half, we looked like a team that if we had another half an hour, we could create chances and we could score goals. So if you look at Wolves, when we had 11 men, same thing. We played really well. We played really well in this second half. And in a similar way to Elliot said, the process is really important and the results will come. So in, in the inverse to Emery, where the process wasn't great and we were getting results, what I'm seeing is the start of a process with different players and different profiles, which are which which are going to improve us moving forward. So I, I was really happy, actually. I was thinking, I know we lost. I mean, I'm not, not happy that we lost, but I'm, I'm excited for what's to come because I think that if we keep 11 men on the pitch and we keep players, <laughs> I can see us winning games and I can see us going on a decent run, particularly when we get past these difficult teams, the Man Cities, etc. The back end of the season, we have a lot of winnable games. And... Obviously, this season's a bit of a write-off, um, this season's done. So I feel like if we really put together a good, strong run and build up some confidence and momentum at the back end of this season, that have a really good summer, that puts us in really good stead going into next season. And I feel that that's it, Can I just add one thing to what you were saying about the, the if we had another half hour? I think we got really unlucky in one key respect in this game. And I, I know it gets tedious hearing about luck, luck, luck. Oh, we're unlucky, we're unlucky. We're where we are on the table because we we belong there. But in this game, losing party to injury when dating because we were all over them, and William was going to Smith Rowe. Now none of us, I'm sure, are thrilled about, but Smith Rowe was playing on that right forward position, and and it you know while he was doing fine there, that's not really his natural position. So William probably would would have been able to keep Saka and Pepe on the left where they were really causing problems. Party was creating the urgency 
for us pushing the ball up the pitch into those spaces where Odegaard was really being influential. Party going off meant Willian came on and played on the left, and we moved Pepe to the right, and that destabilized the whole thing, and Smith-Rowe dropped deeper into central midfield where he was less influential, and I just thought you started to see a little more horseshoe passing around the back to try to get the ball forward. So a lot of the things we were doing well, where I really felt like that goal was coming, when Party went off, I think some of the momentum really went off with him in part because we too many things switched around. Party came off, Pepe went right, Smith deep, Will left where he's not super effective. I mean, he's not super effective anywhere but the bench right now, but like, you know, it's not where we want him. So I totally agree we were all over them, but that change, I think, sapped us of of the sense that it was really, not that we were bad after that. I think it, it forced us to reconfigure too many things on the pitch at once. And, the, and that destabilized what we were trying. Yeah, I think, yeah, Sabas, I think, I think that's... Sabas was a sub, I think. He, he should have gone to Sabas for party, in my opinion. Ready. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think those are um, really fair points. Before I go into, um, uh, I guess, the individual player performances, I guess there is uh, one other, I guess, somewhat major talking point, probably exacerbated by the fact that, you know, um, similar thing... Uh, went against us in the Wolves match a few days prior. Um, refereeing decisions, right? So, Sean, um, what do you make of the fact that we didn't get that penalty um, for for Lacazette uh, with Martinez apparently, you know, clearly pulling him down, VAR looking at that um, and deciding that's not a pen? And I guess the, the Saka decision, probably a bit... Um, less cut and dry as to whether or not that should be a red card, but we have seen them given, we've seen them not not given. So, um, what what do you think about um, about those those decisions? Um, yeah, so I thought the um, I thought the Lacazette one was definitely a penalty. I I get you know the argument of some people that he was leaning into Martinez a bit, but I just think you know I, I think things are given to goalkeepers far far too easily, and I think it needs to be weighted a bit more just the other way I guess at the moment it's, it's quite easy for us to feel just down on our luck as if everything's going against us and you know in another time where maybe some of the goals were gaining we probably wouldn't focus on these decisions a bit as much so we're probably exacerbating them a bit more than necessary but um, I think you know to Arteta's point he, he wants to just He's probably got his own views, but he probably just wants to focus on what he can control, which is obviously the performances more so. So, um, yeah, I, I think those decisions definitely could have gone our way. Maybe if it's another team, it would have gone their way. But I just don't really want to dwell on it too much. I just think, you know, um, the, the process of, of, of what these guys have discussed is probably more important at this at this point in time. And, and that's where we should focus our energy. I, 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 I don't think it's as significant as probably it's it's been played out to be. I think the Wolves one was a lot more harsh than than probably what we saw on Saturday. Yeah, fair points, fair points. Um, I do think, though, um, and I probably will get accused of being some sort of conspiracy theory um, theorist, I think um, there is an element of bias, uh, not, not intentional, but I think probably unconscious bias and probably bias that is perpetuated by you know the narrative of certain teams um in the premier league uh, and and i feel like because you know referees are human that is always going to play a part right i think the fact that um certain pundits or certain teams are represented more than others uh, in the pundit sphere um makes a big difference into how teams are portrayed you know um this whole 
element of Arsenal being a soft team um, is something that I think is 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 very much here to stay in England. Um, and I, I feel like certain times in certain times that feeds into how the referees referee our matches, if that makes sense. I think certain f- uh, fouls against us um, aren't necessarily punished as harsh as harshly as they should be, um, because you know Arsenal are a team that are soft, and you know you're allowed to sort of kick kick lumps up them. And I think also you know it, it's very funny that. I guess for that David Luiz scenario, um, in and of itself, uh, when the referee uh, who on BT Sport is giving his opinion as to, you know, why a decision has been made, he himself talks about, oh, Luiz has done this in the past, that kind of thing, right? And when you're being an objective referee looking at an incident on VAR, things like the player's history and and whether or not he's he has, um, you know. Uh, 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 an ability to to make these sort of mistakes shouldn't come into your decision making when you're reviewing an isolated incident. But I think the fact that you know someone is able to come on TV and say that shows that you know this goes into the thinking of the referees on the pitch as well. And I feel like until we can sort of be objective without you know these preconceptions about certain teams or certain players, you're always going to get decisions that go against you because of those I guess unconscious biases. And that I think is very frustrating as a fan because you can view a decision uh, like the Southampton one on the exact same day, uh, and and it be reviewed and rescinded, but for some reason you know the Arsenal one isn't. And that's very, very frustrating to, I think, see, especially when you've gone through, you know, the, the initial referee's decision, the VAR's decision, and then uh, some disciplinary board's decision on top of that. So, you know, when you when you see these decisions going against you, it's very difficult, I think, to eliminate that, you know, feeling of, you know, they're all against us, that kind of thing. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. You know what I don't hear mentioned? So, I, and I don't have the data in front of me, so I don't know. But, like, the one thing that I think about is... Clearly, referees get calls wrong for every team, and they get calls right for every team, right? But it's also related to how much possession you have, how much possession you have in dangerous areas. So, like, for example, let's say on average, a penalty is given one out of every 100 touches a team has in the box. I'm making something up just to make it easy, Mm -hmm. right? If, as a team, you average 100 touches in the box a game, you're going to get one penalty a game. If you average 10 touches in the box a game, you're going to get every 10 games. So like, I wonder if one of the problems that we have is just the way we are playing. And, and I don't really have the data to back this up, but like, are we not creating enough situations that put referees under pressure to give us calls? And so when they don't give it to us, it feels so terrible. Like, because I'm sure every team has calls that don't go their way, but some of the teams that get more penalties, like, are they better at diving? They maybe are. Maybe their players throw themselves to the ground more or better at it. Maybe they're better at surrounding the ref, asking for calls, whatever the case may be. Because I do think that we are too nice in that respect. Pepe, you say whatever you want about foreign players, this foreign players, that. Pepe is the most honest player I've ever seen. The guy gets kicked to pieces, and he stays up. He really does try to stay up. I mean, the goal he scores against Wolves, he could have gone down two different times. Um, but are we getting it in the box enough? Are we getting into dangerous positions enough? Are we doing the things then that surround the, the theatrics of the game to get the calls? Because... I just can't buy the argument that the refs are out to get Arsenal. I can buy the argument that refs are swayed by lots of different factors that we aren't maybe making the most of. And then the question becomes like, well, should you have to? Well, obviously you shouldn't have to, but if those if 
if that's the way the game is played, you know, you can sit here and complain about not getting calls or you can start whining and surrounding the ref. I mean, Barcelona at their peak of, of being absolute ref owning bastards would surround the ref. I, I was convinced they worked on their surrounding the ref in training as much as they did anything else. So like, maybe we just need to sort of get on the boat, on the boat with that. You know? So yeah. I, I, I think if you ask every different club, out of all the 20 clubs, probably 16, 15, 16 say they, they think they've got an agenda against them. I think mm -hmm. we're looking at the wrong problem. Personally, I feel like it's just the standard of refereeing in the UK is lower than the other big nation. So, and the re and where it stands out to me is when I watch big Champions League games. So when I watch big Champions League games, how often do you really notice the referee? You don't really notice the referee that much when I'm watching those games. And it's because they're quality refs. They just get on with it. They get the job done. They, they go out in silence. I just feel in the UK, we have too many of our best refs or quote unquote best refs or high profile refs who just make bad decisions. And I feel that if you're on the, the, the receiving end of bad decisions time and time again, you're, you, the emotion in you is going to build up a narrative. And I think that's probably going to happen. If you ask loads of clubs in the Premier League, they'll feel the same. And I just feel the standard of the, the referee in the Premier League just needs to improve. That's, that's all I feel about it. Yeah. Yeah, fair points, fair points. Um, yep. And so um, in terms of, I guess, individual player performances from this game, I think there's a few um, that I think would be good to to touch on. Um, I think the strikers uh, will be where I go first. Um, and I think let's let's talk about them as a, as a grouping, um, right? Because I think Lacazette started this match and I don't think he was bad in this game at all. I think, you know, he, he, did, he did a few nice things. He dropped in. Uh, to link play um, and I think that relationship that he's developed between him uh, Smith Rowe and Saka um, is something that has benefited the team um, in recent weeks uh, and then Aubameyang came on um, and I, I think it's fair to say he was probably less involved um, in the build-up but um, you know he only had I think what 20 something minutes on the pitch and managed to have you know more shots at goal than Lacazette did um, in the entire 70 minutes or 65 minutes that he was he was on the pitch. So I feel like they're definitely two different, completely different profiles of striker. Um, but where, where do you think we should go, I guess, um, uh, Elliot, uh, here in terms of who is the starting number nine um, for Arsenal in, in our current uh, situation? This one's easy for me. And unfortunately, people listen to our podcast and don't fast forward through the sections where I talk. They're gonna have heard this but like it's Aubameyang and it's not close it's not close for so many reasons um and I'll try to move through them quickly which is not my forte but I'm gonna try so first of all there's just the strategic one which is Lacazette probably is not getting a new deal and probably will go this summer if we're a smart club we'll find a way to get some money for him and move him on giving him a new deal doesn't make a lot of sense even look full credit to him he's picked up his form he's raised his level he's our leading scorer like all credit to him he's not our future whether we should have done it or not, is on 300,000 pounds a week for the next three seasons at Arsenal. Making it Aubameyang at number nine is the future for Arsenal for the next few seasons. It is not the future with Lacazette. So strategically, it just makes sense to find, to make Aubameyang number nine work. Then there's just the other thing that kind of drives me a little bit crazy, which is because we always kind of want to defend our players or we want to see the best in our players, I think people go a long way towards overvaluing certain things in football. Lacazette's hold-up play is better than Aubameyang's. I'll give him that. Back to goal, he's a little bit better. 
The idea that Lacazette is some brilliant link-up striker is just not true. I'm sorry. It's just not. Like, he isn't. And I don't know if anybody has been watching, but we had two killer counterattack opportunities the last couple weeks. One against Manchester United, where Lacazette opted to shoot from 20 yards out instead of just slipping it in. I think it was to Martinelli standing in acres of space. And then there was one in this game where he holds it, and he holds it, and he holds it, and he holds it, and he holds it. And he can slide in Pepe, he can slide in Sack, and he takes the time, and he takes the time. And he lets Mings, you know, basically amble over to a position and cut out the pass, and he still makes the wrong choice and slides it to Saka, and Mings cuts it out. And again, I'm not trying to kill the guy. He has done positive things, but the extent to which we claim his play is sort of Firmino-esque, the way I hear, like, it's not. It's not. The guy is not laying on chances. And unfortunately, look... No matter how good your hold-up play is, I still think a number nine has to shoot and score. Lacazette had zero shots. Not zero shots on target. Zero shots against Villa. That That's not going to cut it. You know, Aubameyang, unfortunately, Aubameyang is a player you only notice when he's popping up five yards out from goal and scoring. So when he has a bad game, it's shockingly bad because he's totally anonymous. When he has a good game, he scores a hat trick. Over his career, he's nearly a goal-a-game guy. So just play him. Just play him at center forward. You're right. 20 minutes he's on the pitch. He has a cross to the near post that he tries to tap in, gets a little unlucky. He has a a, a shot that I'm convinced he's going to slam into the back of the net, but Rob Holding like falls backwards trying to head it, do some crazy thing, and, and takes it from him. And then he has a back post run that Pepe spots, and I only picked this up on second watching. And Pepe's about to slot it into him for the absolute beautiful tap-in move. And... The ball just catches the the Villa defender and ricochets right to Emmy Martinez's hands, like of all the places to go. So, you know, he's on the pitch 20 minutes and he's in three or four really good goal scoring positions. That's what he does. I think it's it's the combination of Aubameyang being our future at center forward. We've committed to that, so we have to make it work. Plus the fact that he has the goal scoring record that you want to plus the fact that Lacazette's hold up play isn't good enough to compensate for what I think his other shortcomings are. So to me, this is a no-brainer. And look, I guess you could argue, and then I'll finish it here. I guess you could argue, well, why not play him on the left? He had been effective there. With a Pepe on the left and Saka on the right and how good they've looked and with Martinelli waiting in the wings as a guy we want to build up for the future, I think now we have leftsons. I don't like your I don't like your wide forwards being low-touch players. I don't mind your striker being a low-touch player if he's a goal scorer. So get Pepe or Martinelli or Sack on the wings where they can help build play. Put Aubameyang through the middle. Get ESR in the nine. And yeah, look, when you didn't have, I mean, in the 10, when you didn't have a number 10 and Lacazette was dropping in and having to be the de facto 10, maybe he fit more. We have a 10 now. We don't need our striker doing that. So that is my sermon on uh, why Aubameyang over Lacazette. And you can like mute me or kick me off the podcast now. <laughs> much appreciated. Much appreciated. Sean, do you have anything that you want yeah, to add to that? To be that? fair, Elliot won't find any... Um disagreement here so i think it'll be a full house it'll be a a full house all around yeah and i think he's touched on every single point basically as well i'm i'm in agreement i don't like um strikers wide we know obamiang is not good in build-up so i i I don't really understand the logic of using him there i would get it more if we had you know um you know a a 10 who could properly bring people into play but he's played like I, i never you know when he was at dortmund we never heard any cries about his his you know his back to game goal because he was surrounded by you know um dembele um marco royce Mkhitaryan when he was okay do you know what i mean so he had loads of creators in and around him so he could just focus his movement in and around the box 
And he's, um, he's, his best quality is like Cavani's sharpness of movement in and around the box. So I just, yeah, having him on the left touchline and, and what he's, he's, yeah, he's 32 now. So you don't want this guy doing shuttle runs up and down the wing for the rest yeah. of his contract. It's such a waste of, you know, £300,000. Like, like Elliot said, you can argue whether it was a good investment or not, but you've done the investment now. So you have to invest in him. You've got to play to his strengths. And I get um, that, yeah, you know, in an ideal world, He's a six foot plus forward who doesn't really like engaging with centre forwards. But to be fair, not that I'm saying he is Henri. Henri was a six foot plus centre forward who never engaged with centre backs. You know, what I mean, Henri used to drift in from the left. Aubameyang has that as well when he, he can ghost in behind. So yeah, I think you can get in. Like you watch Cavani as well. Cavani doesn't really like spend time hustling and bustling centre backs as well. He just peels off. He knows when to peel. Like and now because we've got more ball handlers in the team, you know, you've got ESI, you've got Saka, you've got Odegaard, Aubameyang can focus on what he's good at, you know, and, and that's, you know, um, finding the pockets in in and around and either of, or breaking beyond the last man um, to get in on goal. So yeah, I would like to see, it probably needs a bit of work, but I would like to see, um, me personally, I would like to see ESR, Saka and Odegaard all rotate, you know, all rotate, you know how we used to have under Wenger loads of technicians on the ball, you know, because that's where we saw a lot of combinations starting to form on Saturday as well. So all of them, you know, linking up um, in behind Aubameyang. And I think Aubameyang would thrive. Um, I really think he would yeah. thrive. As long as we've got that, you know, that solid base in midfield that allows that rotation of positions with those attacking free. So yeah, um, no disagreements from me up front. Great. Great stuff. Um, Leroy, I guess the, the next player that I think uh, is performance that we should discuss a little bit would be um, Granit Xhaka um, here. So for me, I think this was a really good game from Granit Xhaka. You know, um, I did see uh, Shelm put out a tweet, um, very critical of him uh, straight after the game that was uh, receiving some so, some sorry, traction. Be, be, before, before Leroy goes in, can I just say like my criticism of Xhaka wasn't, you know, about this game per se. Like and he and he's and I can also admit that he's been good in very very recent weeks. But what I don't like is you know how Arsenal fans always do this bit of revisionism around um, holding guys like Jacar. You know people like we've seen their level like over like the past four or five years. They will every player will have bouts of you know decent form. But ultimately we are where we are partly because we've relied too much on players like this I mean you saw with holding for the goal when these guys are exposed to massive bits of space we won't be able to control every bit of game you know there'll be games where you have to win your duels you'll have to be able to you know beat pressure and obviously Jack has been good because party helps to cover a lot of his def- deficiencies but I, I don't and obviously good partnerships are, are built on covering each other's weaknesses but at the same time I think the best players can handle their own and, and I think we could get personally we could get a partner for party who doesn't need party to hold his hand do you know what I mean so Jack is doing okay but and, and obviously I'll let Leroy take on from here but still yeah my my, tw- my tweet was about the wider part of the game was that if he's a key component of the team going forward I still think we're going to have our ceiling and our limits yeah. fair enough fair enough um Leroy yeah so what did what did you make of this performance and I guess um touching on Sean's about <laughs> Sean's point about you know the ceiling of the team um, if Xhaka is playing in centre mid. So I agree with a lot of what Sharon just said. Um, now, Xhaka's played really well for me in the last few games. Really, really well. Um, the things that I like about Xhaka is he he does he's, he takes responsibility. Sometimes he can trick the stats, which we know he tries to do, but he takes responsibility and he will pass forward. And I feel that party coming in the team and him being more the second in command or the lieutenant has freed him up a bit. Um, so I think it was a good game for him. I thought he ran his socks off. I thought he really, really tried. I thought he um, he was passing the ball forward. He was moving it quickly, moving it quicker than he normally does. 
So it was a good performance. But as Sharon said, we know what he does. We know his limitations. The things, the peak players that have come into our team in terms of the recruitment recently or the, the starting players like party, they're rounded, complete players. These players can adapt to all different situations that the game requires. And this is the direction we need to move in. So another one thing, I mean, people are talking about replacing Shaka with Basuma, not to sort of digress a bit, but we don't want that because Basuma is another limited player. He's got everything that Shaka hasn't got, but he doesn't have what Shaka has. He doesn't have the passing ability. He doesn't have the passing range. You can't, he, he, he can't control the game like that, which Shaka can when he's playing, in, when it's in his Goldilocks zone, obviously. So I just feel that we need to move away from this player. I think for now, that partnership with those two is probably the best that we have. And there are some things that go together and work quite well. And Shaka is playing well and Wiley is playing well, continue to play him. But in the summer, we need to be looking to move on. And he's another player mm. who has a market. We are terrible at selling people. He is one of the only players we have that will make us some money. Let him play well for the rest of the season. And then goodbye. Thank you very much for your service. Give me 25 million and let's rebuild the team. Mm. Yeah, very, very fair points. And I think, uh, yeah, I agree with everything that's been said so far. Um, my, I guess in terms of being practical, um, I, I generally just can't see the club doing that this summer. Um, I've, I look at central midfield as an area of, you know, um, upgrade opportunity. Um, and I just feel like there's probably a bit too much work to do in that area of the pitch if you are looking to move Jacaron as well, because I look at the players that we've tried to, to sell in the summer, just gone um, in Ganduzi, Lucas Torreira. Uh, you'd like to think Mohamed Elneny um, is likely to be moved on uh, finally in summer as well. And then Danny Ceballos is only on loan. So, you know, that's four central midfielders that, you know, we're, we're probably going to look to to move on. If you add a fifth there in Granite Xhaka, you're leaving Thomas Party as our only centre midfielder, you probably need to buy another three um, on top. So as much as I, I, I agree, um, I actually just feel like, you know, in practice, Jack is going to be here next season um, and he's most likely going to be um, one of the starting two central midfielders if if that is the formation uh, that, that we go with. So um, I, I do hear that, but yeah, I'm just... Uh, apprehensive as, as to how likely um, that is to happen with, you know, uh, and being able to cash in on that market that uh, he, he currently has. Also, um, so, sorry, just to quickly butt in there, you know, when Arteta talks about, I think he's mentioned before that he wants to move to a 4 3 3 long term, you know, with a single pivot. Xhaka can't play as a single pivot, do you know what I mean? So in transition, Xhaka's going to yeah. suffer a lot, a lot, a lot. So, um, like, he he works best as a double pivot. He needs, he needs a partner, do you know what I mean? But if we're going to I, I get what you're saying, obviously, in terms of practicality. I don't, even though I think he should be sold, I don't expect him to be sold this summer. I expect us to probably use this as a basis for next season. So, um, and then we may evolve it over time. But yeah, um, his limitations will continue to hold us back. Um, it might be enough to get us top four in, if we add the right components further forward, but um, you need to upgrade on him. Sorry. And in, in terms of that 4-3-3 um, um, and moving forward to that, I think we saw that ever so slightly uh, after that party injury um, uh, in that game against Villa with, I guess, Xhaka playing as the deepest player um, and then Odegaard and Smith-Rowe uh, playing either side of him. Um, and I thought that was quite an interesting 
midfield. Um, maybe going forward, it might be some, it might be Thomas Party playing in that Xhaka, Xhaka role with Odegaard and Smith Rowe. But um, I'll start with you, Sharon. I guess here, um, how do you feel that that midfield of with Smith Rowe and Odegaard um, playing alongside? How do you think that function? How, and, and do you think that's something that we might see um, for the rest of the season or at points in the rest of the season? So, so I'm very much a, a, a proponent of yeah, getting as many technical players onto the pitch as possible. Um, it would probably need a lot of work um, tactically because I'm not sure how we'd we'd look, um, you know, in transition with that sort of midfield free, um, and you know, uh, if they can get through sort of that level of volume of work. But you know, um, people also said before Pep came, you know, he, he turned KDB and um, David Silver into eights ahead of uh, Fernandinho, and. We, we, we didn't anticipate that working well, but I guess also because they, they got through quite a volume of work, so it, it remains to be seen whether um, Smith-Rowe and um, Odegaard can do the same. I would like to see it trialled maybe at some point. You know, we're at that stage in the season where we're not going to be paying for much in the league, so this is probably as good as a free hit you're going to get in terms of experimentation. You're going to be allowed to, you know, chop and change, um, and we're probably only going to take the Europa League seriously. So I would like to see it, even if... We keep the 4-2-3-1, maybe you could have ESR coming in from one of the sides, maybe from the left. Um, obviously, I know it's not his best. He drifts out to the flanks to create overloads, but he probably doesn't want to start there, but probably prefers to start. But it's going to be hard because obviously Odegaard is a 10. He did play, obviously, centre mid at times for Sociedad last season as well. So, um, But what I'm happy is just that we have options um, and we need to make sure we utilise all of those three options um, on a regular basis going forward anyway. Like any good team, Hiring the right employees for your front office is just as important as recruiting the best players for the game. That's why you need Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. Get your quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster. Only pay for the candidates that meet must-have qualifications and schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. And, and Elliot, it'd be good to hear your thoughts, I guess, on... on the Granite Xhaka uh, point and then also about how um, the midfield might look if we do, you know, decide to utilise this 4-3-3 formation. Yeah. I, I've i never spoken these words. I don't have a lot to say about Granite Xhaka. Um, everything that we have ever said about Granite Xhaka is right. He is exactly the player he has always been. He has never been as shit as he sometimes is portrayed as being, he will never be good enough to take us where we want to go. Standing next to a really effective ball progressor who can carry it, who can draw in defenders, beat them, and give it to Shaka with space to look up and deliver, he can do that. Given it under pressure, he's either going to give it away or go back to his center back. He can't trick his way past. He can't carry the ball forward. He is a static, long-range passer of the ball. I think he's looked better in these last couple of games when we pushed him way up the pitch because, you know, the decision-making is done for him. He gets it and he gives it, and that that's a little more instinctive. This is not a bad football ball, but he has 
think work in a team with the aspirations that we should have. Um, whether he'll be gone in the summer or not, I mean, I have to agree, a team looking out for its future that's committed to a rebuild has to find a way to cash in on its assets. So this business of we can't do it for this reason or we can't do it for that reason or to leave us short for this, like at some point, what are we gonna do? Resign him to a new deal and then have him leave on a free and have him into his 30s getting worse? We're probably seeing the best case scenario of Shaka right now. It is a clear area of improvement. We have committed big money to Thomas Party right in the heart of his prime. So put a partner next to him who can give you one of the elite midfield. If we were able to find a partner for Party who is elite, who is who has the things that Shaka doesn't, and you've got Smith Rowe who looks like he is a budding star in that 10 role between the lines, and you can have Saka on one side and Pepe on the other and Aubameyang through the middle. There's a ceiling there that is much higher than it is right now. And and I would like to see us try to pursue that path to to improvement. Now, as far as, you know, formationally what you could do, I mean, yes, you could have a single pivot with with party at the base and two eights in Smithrow and Odegaard. I mean, the problem, this is the problem with loans. Odegaard is not going to be here next season. I mean, look, could he be? He could, but probably not. And so it is very difficult to commit to a tactical solution that deploys a player that is very talented and potentially solves problems, but who is also not going to be here four months from now, five months from now. So I think that is the challenge with loans. When you're a team that really lacks identity and you're trying to figure out what your identity is, God forbid your identity gets forged around a player that you then have to replace four months later. Um, so I don't know. And, and again, if, if Odegaard winds up staying, that's a whole different story. So yeah, for me, you know, this is the problem with the, the sort of short-term memories that people have with players. I am convinced that if William banged in a hat trick against Leeds this coming weekend, people be in my mentions being like, oh, I bet you don't think he sucks now, mate. Like, no, he still <laughs> sucks, man. He still sucks. He had a hat trick. He still sucks. Like, I, I was really down on this transfer. He played a blinder against Fulham, first game of the season, and I caught hell for it. And I wish I had caught hell all season and he had had a blinder every game, but he didn't. The fact is, these players are not what they do in one game. They are what they do over the balance of the career. And like, Shaka has played enough for Arsenal. We know who he is. He has never been as bad as we said. He is never going to be as good as we'd like. And for that reason, move on. Midfield is too important. You put Thomas Partey in there and you go, oh, that's what an elite footballer looks like in the center of the pitch. I'd like more of that, please. That's that's where I stand on that. And I, I realize I, I had nothing to say about him, so managed to squeeze it into about four or five minutes. <laughs> right. To add to that point, because I think the Odegaard point you make is quite interesting. And the thing is, when Odegaard came on, and this is the first time we've had a proper look at him in an Arsenal shirt, he screams to me like a reference player. I think when he came on, the style of play of the whole team kind of shifted a little bit. Yeah. And it became a very... So the way ESR plays 10 is quite a low-touch 10, a lot of movement off the ball. It, it, I love the way he plays 10. He does a lot for the creativity of the team and he's knitted it really well together. But Odegaard's completely different. Odegaard's a player that give me the ball, give it to you, give it back. Lots of one-touch, two-touch football. And I think he was the catalyst for the style change, which we, which we enjoyed so much. And because he's such a reference player and you can see he's quite a dominant player in the offensive third, you, if we... If we become reliant on him and he just disappears to Madrid, what are we supposed to do? Because you don't find those yeah. players every day and you don't find players who play that style every day. So even though he's really exciting, we have to be very, very careful with how we build this team moving forward, in, especially in the back end of the season going into next season, if he's not going to stay permanently. 
because we, we're yeah. not in control of that situation. You picked up something interesting too, Leroy, that, that comes right from what Odegaard said. He did an interview with Guillaume Balaguer and he said, you know, where do you play on the pitch? And he said, you know, Zidane really likes me here and he wants me to kind of wait for the ball and find the space, but I have to some go get the ball. I want to make where the ball is. I want to take the ball. I want to pick it up. So you're definitely picking up on that character identified in himself, which is his instinct is to go ball, turn and go and, and carry it up the pitch. And um, ironically, at Madrid, I guess he felt that wasn't as much of what they want from him. They want him to try to stay between the lines to try to find the pocket of space. But yeah, he he definitely knows that he's a player that wants to go get the ball. Um, yeah, and, and and I totally agree with your your point that you were building on, which is just how do you, how do you deal with having a player that becomes an important part of your team that there's not a player like him easily available in the market. But I just thought that was interesting what you, you said about being a reference player because I watched that interview with Guillaume Balaguer and he, he definitely feels that way about himself as well. Mm, mm, definitely. And I think on, on that point, um, one of the things that I wrote earlier this evening just before jumping on this uh, podcast is, is I think that's probably why I would quite like to see Smith Rowe and Odegaard play together because I think they they the way that they both try to play is very different and but I also think it's very complementary um in the sense that Smith Rowe is a very big off the ball mover and Odegaard is very on the ball mover and I feel like Smith Rowe's understanding of where to position himself on the pitch and how to to position himself in space and Odegaard's ability to you know find players in space and Smith Rowe's movement in attracting defenders towards him, so you can get third man runners like Saka or Pepe um, in 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 on goal. I think that could be a big elevation into how you know Arsenal um, uh, look to close out the rest of the season and, and the style of play that we we're trying to develop. Because I think in back to um, Man City and the way David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne played, you know they occupied very very different areas of the pitch. You know Kevin De Bruyne liking to drift into that right half space and whip those, you know, those crosses or cross come um, passes into the box. And David Silva very much still a combination player in those tight spaces in that, you know, sort of zone 14 um, area. So I feel like with the two of them in the team, you can get that similar sort of combination where Smith Rowe's in the pockets looking for those combinations and Odegaard's out there in the half spaces trying to whip those balls um, into the box. Um, I see. I, I I do like that, but the only thing is, do you feel that having party at the base limits him too much? I was I was just I was about to say that as well. It's one of the tough things about party is that because he's so good and he can do so much, putting him as a six, you kind of feel like it just limits him because you know you've got a player there who can carry the ball up the pitch, who can punch through line. So having him, you know, because if he was to play as a single pivot, he's got to be very positionally sound. Um, so he's he's not going to be allowed to venture forward as much, and I kind of feel. Like that does limit him. So I would like to, because because it's interesting um, whether you choose to you know build with the two or you build with the one. I would like, and and this this then raises the point about what is Arteta's long term plan? Does he does he? Because when he first came, he built with the two and he had Özil you know at, at ten, um, and obviously then he went back to you know the three four three and now he's back to um, playing with a with a ten again. So I would. I wouldn't be so opposed to keeping this 4 2 3 one, I have to be honest to you, um, if we could find a better partner, partly because I don't want to limit party. And I do think having him just as a six um, limit, limits him a bit. So I like him as a, you know, an eight who can, who is box to box and who, who does a bit of everything. I think I, I, I will just say that, like, oh, go on, sorry, go, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, no, I was no, just going to say, I also think some of this depends, like, on, on how we see ourselves 
recovering possession and and you know what our primary build-up strategy is right if we're building back to front then I think you want that double pivot in there more if we're going to be more of a pressing or counter pressing team I think you can afford to have a bit of bit more of a single pivot because everything's up the pitch more your back four is playing a bit more of a high line you know party's not standing 10 yards deep with a halfway line he's in the opposition half and we're winning the ball back higher up the pitch and those two eights ahead of the six are pressing agents right and they they trigger the press and I I've seen a little bit more of us doing that and I really like it but I you know I think if you want to build back to front you know in a slower build-up phase maybe, maybe you keep one of those eights back as more of a partner with him I noticed we went back to doing the thing recently where Shaka drops into the line of central defenders to make a three on the left side in the first phase of build-up and party gets you know sort of isolated not, not isolated but he he's his own partner you know, he's he's alone between the lines and then Smith Rowe drops in a little bit and the and and Bellerin makes another midfielder that's where I really do like Arteta whatever reservations I have about him as a manager as a coach he clearly has a lot of ideas and a lot of solutions for different phases of play I actually think when he first arrived maybe it was too complicated it was too much like calculus and the players you know left backs were left center backs and central midfielders were sometimes fullbacks but sometimes they were strikers but also the strikers at 10 and like it was just it was too much um but he clearly has different ways of solving based on based on this is a build-up and and where we are in areas of the pitch right so I don't worry about that as much I think you can play this and be a little more front-footed and counter-pressing and then just drop them side building from the back to create more of a a solid foundation and whoever goes one stays you know what i mean like they don't football isn't as rigid anymore wear one hat and and that's why i think you know you're seeing more all-arounder type players instead of mesodosos you're seeing kevin de bruyners right guys who can facilitate but also tackle back at the top of their own box you know mm. yeah and i think i think that's a those are really good points um around build up and i think one thing that i would say uh to add to that and, and on that point around limiting party is um, it depends on what you want your your eights to do because I think party can be an ineffective um, box to box player, but I'd say the question marks around him is in that sort of that final third ac activity and the final third actions. Is that a guy that you do want, you know, close to the opposition box, um, linking linking play or potentially finishing um, chances and adding goals? Um, and I'm not particularly sure that that is the kind of player um, that. That Thomas Party is, and I can compare it to, you know, Angola Kante under Maurizio Sarri, for instance. He was one of those, you know, uh, number eights, and in the final third, he wasn't as effective um, as, you know, someone like a David Silva um, would be, despite him, you know, getting into loads of positions, um, you know, in that position, in, in, playing in that role, um, basically. So, in terms of, you know, likening him to another player who plays six, and I think so, someone like Fernandinho or Fabinho, they're also both, you know, very very press resistant, excellent passes of the ball. And I wouldn't say that, you know, using them in that role limited them as much um, uh, playing as, as the six. So, you know, if you saw... Uh, how we looked against Aston Villa when Party came off, our build-up was very much affected when he wasn't on the pitch, and I feel like that's his the area where he really excels is in that first and second phase and progressing the ball up. So I don't actually think that using him as a six would limit him that much, especially if you are you know sort of dominating possession and 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 having a lot of time um, on the ball. Um, Yes, so. Dan. Watch how many. Watch how often the ball goes back to the center backs when Party's not on versus when he's on. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
it's almost like he has a contract clause where he gets docked money for passing to the center backs. It's crazy. Like when he comes off, we build through the center backs more. And it's so much more stale and slow and predictable and easy for the defense to get their shape. You're spot on. What he, you're right, it might limit him a bit, but what he does that changes everything for us is take it off the center backs, turn, draw on a defender and go by him. Or first touch out of his feet, second touch up the pitch. So yeah, I as long as he's doing that, I think you're getting what you need from him. Agreed, agreed. And I think um, another thing to, I guess we've, we've touched on Man City a lot, I guess it's, uh, you know, it's almost natural given that that's where Arteta has come from. And sort of uh, that's a lot of the reference points I think we can point to as to what we're doing in the team. Um, I think it's very interesting the way uh, Pep is using uh, Jao Cancelo. Um, this season and how he's used Kyle Walker, Zinchenko, Fabian Delph um, in the past. And I guess this is another player that I think his performance is something worth discussing from this Aston Villa match is Hector Bellerin. right? And I personally see that as a big um, upgrade opportunity there as well. And I think that, you know, upgrading in that position will probably allow us to do um, a few more interesting things um, in, with, in, 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 in terms of how we build play and how we attack, as well as how we defend, you know, and defend counters. Um, so I guess, Elliot, what do you make of his performance in this game? Um, and, and do you agree with me that you think it, it's a potential upgrade opportunity there? Yeah, sorry. So you just cut out just a little bit. So I had a little bit of difficulty hearing the right. setup for that one. So fr from what angle specifically? Sorry, I apologize. It's my internet. Um, sorry, so, so that was just, um, that was just on... Um, the way uh, Pep Guardiola's used his fullback, so Cancelo, Delph, yep. Zinchenko, Carl right. Walker, and whatnot, and whether you think you know that that Bellerin position is something that you know we could upgrade and, and do similar things with. Well, so yeah, so sorry, so the I, I mean, this is where it's really tricky. I, fullback, I think, is a very difficult position to analyze right now because it is it's a position that's having a moment, for lack of a better way to say it. You know what I mean? Like you look at Liverpool. And fullback has been one of the most important routes to goal-scoring opportunities for them over the last couple of seasons, Robertson and especially TAA, right? Um, but from more traditional positions, crossing the ball, winning the ball, crossing the ball. And you look at Pep, and you have had players in that invert and become the deepest central midfielders at times. Well, it might, might have been two or three seasons ago he was doing that, the inverted fullbacks, right? And they were tucking in almost like a 2-2 two -two box you know, in the first phase of play, like there's just so many ways you can use it. It seems like what Arteta wants to do is keep the left back on the outside, almost like a, a winger, and use the right back more like an auxiliary midfielder. And maybe that's because of who he's got on either wing that he wants Saka to be able to stay wider and he wants to push Pepe closer to the to the box. Maybe it's because he feels it suits their skill set that Bellerin is, and I think rightly so, an exceptional possession-oriented passer who takes up really interesting inter, in, um, internal positions, right? Inside positions, whereas Tierney can push and run and send in a really good cross into the box. Um, I, guys, I got to admit, like, I have a soft spot for Bellerin. I think he's I think he's over overly criticized. I think Hector Bellerin, the, the problem, look, Hector Bellerin is a B-minus, C-plus defender at best. Maybe he's a C-plus, C-minus defender. He is a liability there. He's easy to get dribbled. He gets his weight too much on one foot. He shows the man to a strong side sometimes where you're like, what are you doing? Why are you showing him there? Like he 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 has some positional issues defensively. He's definitely not as good a crosser as he needs to be. 
But in terms of some of his passing and some of his interior passing and some of his his interior movement, it really is exceptional. And like even in the Villa game, he had one really good curling shot from the top of the box that comes from him taking up an interior position, carrying it to the top of the box and and having a really good shot at goal. He set up one fantastic chance um, in the game. He he has the ability to do it, and he just doesn't p- bring it all together. I know Clive on our podcast like really thinks we need an upgrade in that position, and I'm not saying we don't. Like if you could find me a really good better right back than Bellerin, I'd say let's take him. But to your point, Dan, I'm not totally sure what role it is. Right? I don't think we want to push and run and cross right back. I, that it doesn't strike me as the way that Arteta wants to play. I don't think he wants two wide fullbacks. I think he wants one. He wants that that asymmetric buildup, you know, with 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 the overload of the extra player on the left with Tierney, and then the the, the extra space for the right wide forward to operate. I mean, I'm, I'm maybe not explaining it really well, but I think what I'm trying to say is just that, which is which is a shame because this is a podcast where you're supposed to explain yourself. But like, um, the the player you're going to target depends on the role you want. And I think if the role we want is the right back to be more of an interior auxiliary midfielder when we're, when we're attacking, I actually don't think you're going to find many better than Bellerin at that. Um, and, and that acknowledges all of the flaws of his that I've laid out. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I guess that's me punting on the question is to say that if he wants to build play this way, I'm not sure who you'd go, go get. Like you wouldn't get Lamptey, right, to play the way Bellerin's playing. You wouldn't go get him to do that. Um, so I don't know. I, I guess I, it depends how this position is going to evolve. I think you can absolutely upgrade right back, but I think you have to be clear about what we want the right back to do. We're definitely not asking the right back to do the same thing we're asking the left back to do. Is that fair? Would we agree with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah makes fair. sense. Yeah, uh, Leroy or Sean, do you have anything that you want to add to, to what Elliot said? Yeah, I, no, I, I would, I, I'd be inclined to agree and, and I'd, I would actually agree with the way Arteta builds up. And I think Wenger was kind of similar as well, you know, in, in terms of he would always have one that would bomb on and then he would have one, who, you know, who would sit in. And and obviously it makes sense in terms of um, the right back being the one who obviously helps to sit in as, as an auxiliary midfielder and protects against the counter attack as well. So I've, I've, I've got no issues with that. Um, I'd, yeah, it, a lot depends on, on how it is. I think because of the way we use Tini and because Tini has such like the way he plays, he gives such like he gives us such good athletic capabilities on the left like it just it, it sort of forces your hand anyway like in terms of what the right back is supposed to do um I, w- I would slightly disagree with Elliot in the sense that I, I don't think Bellerin is the best in pos- in possession um mm. but at, at the same time um I my mind is more towards the midfield and attack like that's kind of, that's kind of how I feel like I don't think it's the worst like like it's, it's the big. I, I think it could definitely be upgraded, but it wouldn't be high up on my priority list. In if that makes sense. Certainly, if there was a good offer to sell Bellerin, I got no problem with that. I ju- I just think like so in terms of possession, like let's put it this way: Bellerin just completes an ex- a very high percentage of his passes. He's good in possession in the strictest sense, right? Like he he he's an 89 percent passer. He's pretty good in XG chain, which, you know, measures your involvement in moves that result in a chance. Um, it's tough because a lot of times I feel I'm defending Bellerin more than his play deserves, and I know that frustrates people. I, I think his qualities are underrated, but his liability... The best way I can say it is the criticisms people have of him are fair. 
he has those liabilities. I just think people see those liabilities and refuse to see the other part. Things he does do um, may be the case that the liabilities outweigh those. I, I would sell if there was a good bid for him, obviously, and I'd upgrade. But I still think we need to be clear about what what that fullback is supposed to be doing, you know? Yeah, I think I think that's a fair point. And I think it, it's it's almost interesting to, you know, how much of it is the how the manager wants to play and how much of it is just the profile of player that he has. Because um, mm. I think, you know, someone like Tierney, the, the, the things that he's good at, he's really good at. So you might just have to, you know, build the team to get the best out of that. Whereas, you know, he might want someone that does something similar to what Zinchenko does at Man City, um, perhaps uh, if he had his his own way. Um, so I guess to, to sort of wrap up this podcast, um, let's look ahead to the weekend, um, which is Leeds United at home. Um, they somehow inexplicably uh, managed to draw with us uh, last time after probably putting our goal under the biggest siege it has been under all season. Um, I guess my question to you, Elliot, would be what would you do for this game, um, you know, in terms of changes set up? Um, who would you like to see start? And and then, uh, I guess, a mini prediction for how you expect the game to go. So this is a really tricky game. Uh, so I've actually been really uh, bullish on the way we've been playing lately. I think like most people, this one is tricky for me because... Leeds have a very specific way of playing that they're very comfortable with, and they attack the crap out of you, but they do leave themselves extremely exposed if you can play past that press. They are willing to be just flat-out bad defensively in exchange for putting you under immense pressure at the other end. This is very diff different than what we've faced lately, where mostly we've had the ball and we've been in control and we've shot ourselves in the foot a little bit, but we haven't come under immense pressure, but we also haven't had teams that we could really go at. These teams, you know, Wolves, we had to go at them and, and they looked like they were going to fall apart and then obviously we go down to nine men and they could pack the box and, you know, made it hard for us. Villa defended deep because we gifted them an early goal. Leeds are going to give us chances to come at them. I'm really nervous about what this looks like without party. Not to make this the Thomas Party podcast, but like he, he is our press breaker. He can get around the Leeds press. I'm not saying he's not vulnerable. I'm not saying he'll never give it away. He's been a little bit loose the last two games. But if it's Shaka and Elneny in midfield, Leeds are going to press the crap out of us. We're going to go back to center backs. Center backs are going to go fullbacks. Fullbacks are going to go center backs. We're going to kick long, and it's going to go out for a throw, and Leeds are going to come again. Like, if Party's there and he can get past that first guy and push it forward or quickly punch it between the lines to Odegaard or ESR, boom, we're underway. We're now in there attacking third. We bypass the press, and they're super vulnerable. I love our chance to do something unexpected here and win 4-1, 5-2. This could be that kind of game where we have space and we make the right choices in the final third and it all comes together. But I think a big component of that is can we get through that first phase of their pressure? And Thomas Party is a big, big key to that for me. So it's tricky too because look, it's Benfica on Thursday. Party may be fit, but Arteta may not be willing to risk it. And I can certainly understand. But if it's Shaq at El Nenny, or maybe Ceballos is back, and that's a little better, but still slow. Back to the center back, safer pass first. That would worry me, guys. So I, I it's kind of an unanswer, but I, I see us doing the same things, and it's just going to be, can we get past the first layer of their press to get it into Smith-Rowe or Odegaard between the lines to get it beyond that initial pressure where they can really be gotten at? Or will we be opting for the safe pass, be giving it back to center backs, and, and ultimately not be able to advance to that 
that second phase of play where we can hurt them. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, Leroy, um, same questions to you. Sort of like what, what would you like to see us do um, in this match? Um, so it's hard because I do think the league season is pretty much done, even though I wouldn't tank the season because you do need that winning momentum and you do need that winning mentality to continue. I would have one eye towards Benfica. And Partey's had a few different injuries. And he, without a preseason, I'm not sure if it's robust enough to play game after game after game like that. So I, I would be tempted to rest him. Now, if I was going to go out for the win, I would want to say, well, you have to match leads. If you don't match leads or intensity, you're finished. So I would like to see our presses and our hard runners on. I'd like to see Partey. I'd like to see ESR, et cetera, et cetera. I feel that with Aubameyang up front, because we're going to get space, and I feel if you put Odegaard and ESR and Saka in the team, so or Pepe, sorry, um, Odegaard and Saka in the team, sorry, you, I, I feel that we've got a chance to score, score goals against Leeds, and I think we'd win. I really do. I really think we'd win. But it's hard because I'm tempted to rest the players we want to use against Benfica because that is our real chance at really, really hitting the big time and kind of cheating in our comeback and getting into the Champions League. So I really want to see us put all our eggs in the Europa basket. So I, I would rest party and some of our better players for um, for the game because a lot of them are really suffering with their load at the moment. And it, it's, it's, it's showing because they look tired at the end of games as well. So yeah, that's, I, I would go for um, uh, Ceballos and Shaka and I'd see how he goes personally. And Sean, same question. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one now because now we, we go into the fact of, yeah, we're going to be balancing that Thursday to Sunday schedule again. And I'd, I'd be inclined to agree with Lee where I, I just want to put all our eggs. Not that you're throwing the league season away, but um, you have to think with how Party has reacted at times so far this season, you know, coming off. I think, yeah, I think we just need to manage it carefully. So, yeah, <laughs> and, and it is a tough one because this is a very winnable game just because of the amount of space that will be there to be had. And to be fair... Um, that we've had in, in a lot of the last few games. So I would, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you know what? I'm going to say something a bit wild. I'd probably do Seb Sabayos and El Neni for this game. It, it sounds crazy, but yeah, I really do think we need to prioritise. Yeah, you can't do that. That's just fine. Uh, it is, it is. It's, 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 incredibly, it's incredibly risky, but yeah, I, I we need to wrap Party and ESR in Cottonwall because those are the ones that consistently break lines and are available um, in between lines for us. So yeah, I, I would... If, even if we don't rest Jacquard, but yeah, party and ESR, I wouldn't start this game. Mm. Mm. Uh, he, he, so can we grant, I think every one of us agrees that the Europa League is now the priority, that the league season is pretty well done in terms of having much to fight for. I think we can all probably agree Arteta won't see it that way though. So like whether we think that or not, I think you're crazy if you think Arteta will fully, like he's not going to pull what he pulled for the FA Cup game. You know, FA Cup tie. He's he's not. He's just not not on the heels of two Premier League losses. If we had beaten Wolves and Leeds, and he was feeling pretty good about life, and was thinking maybe I'll try to get away with this one, maybe. But no, on the heels of two losses, the the fan base will eat him for lunch if he heavily rotates for Benfica. I just I just don't see how he can do that. And I mean, just to to put a point on what I was saying, Leeds are fifth in the league, basically tied for fourth in expected goals. Like they are an attacking powerhouse. Thirty six. Only City, United, and Liverpool better than them. They are second to last in expected goals against. Only West Brom are worse. So, like, this is a game that is all about where we play. 
If we are playing in our defensive third and cannot get the ball at the pitch, we are in trouble. If we get it out of our defensive third quickly and get it into their defensive third, we are in business. So I think it is a really fascinating game. And I just, if he wants to throw, you know, El Nenny and Shaq out there in midfield and try to play the, the Leeds press that way. And, and again, like, look, if you to right now told me we could finish 14th in the Premier League and win the Europa League, like, of course I'm taking that. The Europa League is the priority. It is. But I just don't think the manager has the luxury on the heels of two losses sitting 10th, especially when leads are above us in the table. And like, it, you know, from a PR standpoint, he can't afford to, to heavily rotate in this game and get beat by leads and, and be three losses on the trot and in the league. He just can't do it. That's a fair yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think those are all um, really good points. Um, my my only two cents that I would add to that is um, that might come into his thinking is the fact that party was supposed to supposed to come back relatively quickly the first time. Yeah, mm -hmm. he he got rushed back, and you know he was out for eight games. So I hope that that thinking is in Arteta's mind a little bit because you know if he's out for Benfica and, you know, the, the rest of the important games we have coming up, um, if we do progress in Europa League, that would be a massive, massive blow. So um, I, I think that's probably the only player I can see Arteta choosing to rest here um, because the, a week's rest um, from the last game is quite big um, for, for the likes of ESR and Saka. So I feel like we're probably likely to see those guys... Um, get a lot of minutes in this game as well and I think this is 100% a game for Aubameyang up top you know people always saying about you know oh he doesn't get the spacing behind he doesn't like to face up to defenders but this is a team where that is literally a non-issue and they give you ample room in behind to run to run into so um, if we are able to beat the press having Aubameyang uh, with with some space running to as we saw against Newcastle is very very effective um, so I'd like to see him start this match and also Pepe um, with his ability to, to play on the break as well. Um, so uh, You know what's funny? <laughs> if I could pick one guy to rest for this game because I'd be worried about him missing you know, Benfica and so on, it would be Thomas Partey. But if I had to pick one player that we need to face the specific challenge that Leeds presents, it would be Thomas Partey. You know what I mean? You could pick <laughs> any other player in the team and I'd say... We could probably get away without them in this game. But the way Leeds press, I feel like Party's the, Party's the one guy who needs the rest, who we're scared about his fitness issues, but he's the one guy that I think without him, we look really easy to target for that press. So I, I don't, I, who would want to be a manager? Like I feel bad for Arteta there. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, and so uh, I think that's probably a good place to end the episode. Um, Elliot, thank you very much for coming on again. Um, uh, listeners, you can find him on Twitter, um, at Yankee Gunner. Um, please also uh, tune into the Arsenal Vision podcast. I think that's Ars Arsenal V podcast on Twitter as well. Um, and, yes, they, yeah. and they put out uh, lots of great content that um, uh, I can vouch for. Uh, I, I think is great content as well. Thanks, um, make sure uh, you follow uh, Touchy Gunas on Twitter, Instagram, subscribe to the Touchline Fracas YouTube channel um, and this week, uh, I think we've got a couple of Patreon pieces um, scheduled for you, Tachiguna. So make sure you uh, subscribe to that as well if you want some uh, extra content in addition to uh, this this podcast. But otherwise, um, thanks everyone for listening and thank you guys for, for coming on. See you there. Cheers. To 2-2 two -two and we've still got more than half an hour to go. And here's Ozil. Lacazette. Ozil!
Baby, welcome to the party. Uh, I'm off the Myers and Lean. That's why I'm over retarded. That's why I'm over retarded. Baby, welcome to the party. Huh? I hit the boy up and then I go skate in a Rari. Baby, welcome to the party. Pick some of that. Give me lit. Gun on my One in the head. Podcast Network.